Our scripture reading tonight is Jonah chapter 4. We come to our final installment in the book of Jonah, looking at this uh, rather short, just 11 verses, final chapter of the book of Jonah. Remember last week that Jonah had preached in Nineveh and a great salvation had come. And now we see Jonah's response to it in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plants? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we come once more, to this book of Jonah, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive what it would have to teach us, even as it may teach us things that are difficult, that are challenging to us, as we see Jonah's continued rebellion and misunderstanding of the things of your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight is our final installment of this short series on the reluctant prophet Jonah. In chapter 1, the Lord told Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a great city of 120,000 and three days walk across and sworn enemies of Israel. Well, Jonah rebels against God 
and attempts to flee to Tarshish in Spain. But God knows where Jonah has gone and brings a mighty storm, brings the crew to throw Jonah into the sea. And even then, the crew is seemingly converted to being worshipers of Yahweh. In chapter 2, Jonah, who was swallowed by a fish and kept alive for three days, composed a prayer, a psalm of repentance and declaration of God's goodness and covenant faithfulness. And then in chapter 3, which we looked at last week, Jonah got the second chance of all second chances to go to Nineveh and preach the word of God. Specifically, he preached of God's coming judgment. The result is that Nineveh repented from the king down to the least of them. Even the livestock of Nineveh were decked in sackcloth and ashes and kept from food and drink. It is the largest single conversion event, the largest single revival documented in Scripture. This story has been full of twists and turns from the start. But it wouldn't be Jonah's story if we didn't have one more twist before the end. And for that final twist, we come tonight to chapter 4. Now think, if you had just witnessed the repentance and conversion of an entire large city, how would you respond? Let's say you went over to Sioux Falls and went for a walk there, and while on your walk, you started crying out that the city was going to be destroyed. Suppose you didn't get arrested for that, and instead the whole city believes you and repents of its sin and fasts and prays to God. I don't even know how I would feel or how I would respond if something like that happened, but that is basically what has happened in Nineveh. And yet from Jonah, we get a very strange response to it. Rather than joy and gladness at this great work of salvation, we see in Jonah 4, Jonah's fight, his argument, his disagreement with God over what has happened in Nineveh. We see Jonah's fight tonight in three parts. First, we see pouting from Jonah in verses 1 through 4. Second, we see provision from God despite Jonah's absurd conduct. God still cares for Jonah and helps him. We see this in verses 5 through 9. And third and finally, we see perspective. Sorry, that's verses 5 through 8. And then we see perspective in verses 9 through 11. God gets the last word in this story and confronts Jonah's selfish thinking. So again, we have pouting. In verses 1 through 4, provision in 5 through 8, and then perspective in 9 through 11. So first we see Jonah pouting in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we see that it, this repentance in Nineveh, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. A more wooden translation of the Hebrew here would be something like, it was evil to Jonah, very evil, and it angered him. There's an intensifying repetition to show just how bad Jonah found this situation and just how angry he was. Now in verse 2, we see that Jonah prays. Now at least Jonah is at a point now where his reaction to things is to pray, for we did not see that sort of thing at the beginning of the story, but... 
but his prayer is rather absurd. Jonah admits that he had predicted this outcome. Back in chapter 1, we were not told specifically why Jonah fled to Tarshish, but here it is made clear. He fled because he believed that God would do what God has done, that he would bring the Ninevites to repentance. And Jonah did not want to see that happen. In verse 2, we see what would actually be in any other context, a recitation of God's greatness, things for which God would be praised. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. This is the kind of language we see all over Scripture to describe God's goodness and love for His people. We see it in passages of praise, passages of hope and comfort, not in a passage of complaint like we see here. God's covenant faithfulness, the same sort of thing that Jonah invoked when he was inside the fish. That is the kind of language we see here. But again, rather than a source of comfort and praise from Jonah, God's love and covenant faithfulness here has become a reason to whine, a reason to pout, a reason to complain. Jonah fully expected a good and loving and merciful God to deliver Nineveh from destruction. But Jonah would rather see Nineveh's destruction. And he is so upset when that destruction does not come that he even despairs of his own life. In verse 3, we see Jonah asking God to kill him, to take his life. He is so grieved by Nineveh's repentance, he would rather die and see these enemies come to faith. He would rather be dead than see Nineveh worship the true and living God. Now we see this, and it does and should to us look like a very twisted and backwards and sinful response. A city has repented. Thousands upon thousands of people have come to know the Lord. This should be an occasion for rejoicing. What Jonah's reaction reveals is a very deep hatred for the Ninevites. One that seems to even run deeper than his faith in God and his concern for the work of God's kingdom. As refresher, Jonah was a man of Israel. Now this is Israel as distinct from Judah. So Israel was the northern kingdom, Judah was the southern portion of the divided kingdom. Israel was not known by this time for its piety or devotion to God. They often rebelled against God. All of their kings, from the first to the last, are recorded in Scripture as having done evil in the sight of the Lord. They led the people into idolatry. Now, as punishment, as chastisement, as discipline, God would send Israel's enemies to invade them, and this included Assyria, which, again, its capital is this Nineveh. Now, while we don't see explicitly stated the reason for Jonah's hatred of Nineveh, it's probably at least somewhat attached to this geopolitical conflict between these two nations. Now, it is not that geopolitical matters don't mean anything. They often very much do. When wars are fought, image bearers of God are killing each other. Matters of good and evil are at stake. 
atrocities sadly do occur, which are grievous in the sight of God and should be in the eyes of his people. Most of us now living in America, we've never seen warfare inside our own country on our soil, so we might not understand how serious it is or the kind of reactions it can provoke. And yet, though wars and though geopolitics are very important and consequential as they pertain to this temporal life and as they pertain to order and justice in the world, they are not ultimate. What is ultimate is the proclamation of the gospel and the building of Christ's church. And although we don't see this emphasis much in the Old Testament, it is there. Israel's salvation was never just about Israel. The promise given to Abraham was that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We don't see that come to full realization until Christ, but we do see bits and pieces of it throughout the Old Testament, and this salvation in Nineveh is one such occasion. So Jonah has seen a great blessing of salvation poured out on a great city, on a foreign nation. They are repenting of their warfare and bloodshed that probably accounts for some of the reasons that Jonah hates them. But he's so caught up in that hatred and that history that he can't see this situation in Nineveh and be thankful for what it is. Now this is a warning, a caution to us, to all people. While temporal matters and wars and politics and history do matter, they all take a back seat to God's kingdom building work through his church. You can think of any war that's ever occurred. You could even think of a current war, the one going on between Ukraine and Russia. I'm not going to get into the war itself and the reasons for it and what is at stake, but I do know that since it has started, it has been a source of hatred directed towards nations and peoples on all sides. And surely there has been wrongdoing and reasons why nations should respond to these things and people should think things about these things. But it also remains true that on both sides of this or any other conflict, there are image bearers of God There are brothers and sisters in Christ. There are Christians in Ukraine. There are Christians in Russia. And that both nations need the salvation that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to repent and turn from their sins just as our nation needs to do. So we cannot let passions inflamed by politics and warfare and things of that sort cause us to hate the people that God has purposed to save and to work among But this issue can be brought even closer to home. I mention a lot here that we are facing an age of moral and spiritual chaos. And this chaos is driven by sin. Sin in the world. The world looking the other way at sin. The world wanting to embrace and celebrate sin. Many people in our nation and in our day are in open-mouthed and closed-fisted rebellion against God in His law and His created order. And we have to engage with this chaos as Christians, and that means speaking hard and unpopular truths, even in public. It also means maintaining righteousness and holiness and keeping ourselves and our churches and our families from evil. And yet, 
in such a time as this, we, like Jonah, can come to hate those who oppose us to the point where we lose sight of the ultimate. That our society and all of the people in it, even the people trying their best to destroy us and destroy the church, need Christ. In fact, Christ may well be the only hope of any change coming in their lives. He is certainly their only hope of salvation and eternal life. Yes, sin remains sin. We should never back away from that. We should never compromise on that. We should never refrain from speaking the truth about that. And so much of our world and our culture is given over to sin, but we must remember that we also have a gospel commission even to those who hate us. Like Jonah, we may have to speak in condemnation over this present evil age and its sins. We should do so with the hope that salvation in Christ may come to those who hear and those who even now reject God and hate Him. So all this to say, as has often been the case in Jonah, it can be easy for us to look down our noses at Jonah, how out of line and ridiculous he seems to be. But when we look below the surface, we can be more like Jonah than we realize. We can hate those whom God has purposed to save. We can let our hatred according to worldly categories seep into the church, how we treat brothers and sisters, how we treat our mission to a lost and dying world. Now we see to this point that Jonah is being ridiculous, and God asks him a question in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? Now this question expects a negative response. To ask the question is basically to answer it. It is not right for Jonah to be angry in this way. But we don't get Jonah's answer just yet. We will get that later. But the response to the deliverance and salvation of a people in a city is a cause for rejoicing, not anger. God is confronting Jonah's sin. But he does not do so according to what Jonah's sin deserves. And that brings us to our second point. After Jonah's pouting, we see God's provision in verses 5 through 8. So at this point, Jonah is basically in full tantrum mode. He can't even stay in the city. He is so upset. He goes outside the city and he makes a shelter, though as we will learn shortly, it must not have been a very good shelter. But he's in this shelter. He's sitting outside the city. He wants to see what happens to the city. Based on what we've heard so far, Jonah's probably sitting there hoping that somehow, for some reason, judgment still falls on Nineveh. That somehow their repentance is not enough, and they're going to finally get what Jonah thinks they have coming. Now, Nineveh was located in the desert. In fact, its ruins are located just outside of the present-day city of Mosul in Iraq. This was a very important city in the Iraq War. You might have heard of it back then. Now, Nineveh was along the Tigris River, so it had a water supply, it had irrigation for crops. That doesn't change the fact that it was in a hot, sunny desert. If you've ever been to a desert, you might get an idea what this was like. When Heidi and I lived in Southern California, when I was in seminary, 
We liked visiting the desert because it was about the only place down there where you could get away from crowds and traffic and such, and it also had some beautiful scenery. But it was hot, and the sun was very damaging. I picked up this strange habit of now where I go out in the sun, I wear these wide-brimmed hats that Heidi hates. They're not very fashionable. But they do a good job of keeping the sun off. Um, I just tell her it beats getting skin cancer. But all that to say, in the desert, because of the the heat and the sun, one needs to be properly protected. Well, Jonah made his shelter, and it didn't work very well. So Jonah's out there sitting in the desert, pouting, probably not drinking enough water because he's in a bad mood and is, is angry. So... If he just stays in this state, he's going to get burned by the sun. He's going to probably get dehydrated. He might even die, which he's despairing of his life, so maybe that's what he wants. But God takes care of him. His shelter being inadequate, God causes this plant, this vine, to grow. And it gives Jonah the shade he is lacking. So Jonah is throwing this tantrum, being hateful, being ridiculous, God continues to show favor towards him. Now in Jonah, we see something of a microcosm of the situation in Nineveh. Nineveh had sinned greatly against the Lord. They deserve to die. God has through Jonah proclaimed to Nineveh that death is coming. But God also shows grace and favor to Nineveh in that when they repent, he turns the calamity away. Now Jonah here has been very rebellious against God. But when he fled from God, God kept him alive. God preserved his life. God offered the opportunity for repentance and even continues to do so here in chapter 4. Even now, as Jonah has done what God commanded, but hates the result and is throwing a tantrum against God, God continues to show his grace and forbearance to Jonah. Not just in physical and temporal terms with the plant, but in spiritual terms. Now we see that Jonah grows to appreciate this plant. He grows rather fond of it, as any of us in such a situation would, being out in the desert in the burning hot sun. And oh, here's a nice shady spot. Now we have seen before, and we see here again, This language of God preparing things, God appointing and ordaining things he's done all throughout this book. For many of the things that we can learn from the book of Jonah, it is a study in God's providence. God has over and over again orchestrated events in nature and in creation to carry out his will in Jonah's life. Jonah flees. God prepares a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. God prepares a fish to receive Jonah when he's thrown into the sea. Though not explicitly stated, it is clear that God prepared Nineveh to receive the word that Jonah brought. Then he prepares this vine, and finally he will prepare the worm that will kill that vine. Jonah's story is not so much about Jonah. Or if anything, Jonah may well be the villain of this story. Jonah's story is a story about God using whatever means necessary to accomplish his purposes and to save and redeem his people. 
Jonah seems to stay out in the desert sulking for at least a day and a night, for we see in verse 7 that he's still there the next morning. And that next morning, God prepares the worm that kills the plant. Not only that, but God prepares a hot east wind to further accentuate the punishing effects of the desert sun. God has seen God, or Jonah has seen God's mercy and favor, but now he's going to see a picture of something else. Without God's mercy, all are condemned. All are facing a burning much more intense than the Nineveh sun. All, apart from God's grace, are facing eternal wrath and condemnation. And so in this plant and its death, God is giving Jonah an object lesson. But how does Jonah respond to this? Rather similarly to how he did before. He responds to this death of the plant and the punishing of the sun as he did to the salvation of Nineveh. He starts to grow faint. He's out in the desert, sulking again, probably not drinking water. Now he doesn't have his shade and he's feeling the effects of the heat. And he's so upset by all this that just as he did in verse 3, he wishes again that he were dead. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. His hatred of Nineveh was so great, and his focus on himself and his own comfort so skewed his priorities, that while he's sitting out there hoping that God will destroy Nineveh, despite all that has happened, <clears throat> God is not done teaching Jonah, and God gets the last word. And so after Jonah's pouting and God's provision, we now turn to God's perspective, our final points in verses 9 through 11. As has been true throughout this episode, Jonah is out of line, but God continues to be patient and merciful. With Jonah, And it's using this to teach Jonah, and through its preservation in the Word, to teach us and reorient us towards God's purposes. God asks Jonah in verse 9, similar question as before. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So again, Jonah despairs of life, and then God asks the question. But here, he's, God is more specific. He asks about just the plant. God gives Jonah this living parable with the plant, and now he once again puts the question to Jonah. Now, after the question in verse 4, we did not see an answer from Jonah, but in verse 9, we do get an answer from Jonah. He says, it is right for me to be angry even to death. So Jonah really believes that he is justified in his actions here. That the loss of this plant is something so severe that he would be better off dead than alive. But God is about to set the record straight. In verse 10, the Lord says, You have had pity on the plant, for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Now, implicit in this rebuke is that if Jonah did not make the plant or cause it to grow, somebody did, which this is, of course, God himself. It is God who created all things and governs them by his counsel and providence. God gave this plant life, 
nurtured it, sustained it, kept it alive for as long as he willed. It just so happened to be in the case of this one plant, not for very long. But it was still a work of God. God is giving Jonah an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jonah was very attached to this one short-lived plant. But then God provides perspective to Jonah and confronts his absurdity in verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and many livestock? And then on that rather jarring and abrupt note, that is where the book ends with this question left open. We are left to answer the question ourselves. But it is not a difficult question or a difficult answer. The same God who gives life to this plant is the same God who brings life and salvation to people and cities and nations, and in this case did so to Nineveh. In Scripture, spiritual birth and life are often described through metaphors of plants, metaphors of farming. Isaiah chapter 5 is one example. There's a parable of the vineyard in which rebellious Israel is condemned as a vineyard that God planted and watered and put all the work into to provide for its success, but that vineyard did not bear fruit. Israel and her rebellion and apostasy was like a vineyard that despite all the efforts and all the right conditions for success did not bear for its master. Jesus used several parables of farming and plant growth. He cursed a fig tree for unfruitfulness, again dealing with the rebellion and rejection of him by the house of Israel. Another is the parable of the sower. He talks about how the seed of the gospel goes forth, but not everyone receives it unto life. Paul uses similar metaphors about planting and watering, but it is God who provides the increase. In all of these, we see through farming, through plant life and growth, illustrated God's work in the lives of his people. Just as a plant grows from a small seed into a living and productive thing, just as that vine grew behind Jonah and gave him shade, God gives life to people from a seed planted by the gospel. And then the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and brings about repentance unto life, as we saw in the city of Nineveh. Now, as we also looked at last week with Nineveh, and as we see in the vineyard and the fig tree, not all who have this life remain fruitful and alive forever. Eventually, Nineveh rebels against God and the city is finally destroyed, as the prophet Nahum announces. But for now, in the time of Jonah, for Nineveh, salvation has come. Jonah is so worried about a plant that gave him shade, but he is indifferent to the great work of God that has been done among this great city. All these people, all these image bearers of God. It's not merely that Jonah preached as commanded. If that was all that happened, nothing would happen because fallen and sinful man cannot believe the word of God on his own. Just as a farmer puts great labor into his crop, as a vineyard keeper makes huge investment to grow his grapes, God had prepared Nineveh to receive his word and to repent. And when the time came, they did. 
This is a great and mighty work of God, the salvation of sinners. Jonah not only doesn't care about that, but is hateful and resentful about it. He's wrapped up in this comparatively insignificant plant. He lived a short life, brought only a small measure of comfort, but cares nothing for the great city of people that were previously dying in their sins. The answer to the final question of this book is obvious. But just because it's obvious doesn't mean that it is easy. As I mentioned before, it's easy to look down our noses at Jonah and think about how ridiculous and rebellious he was. But how often are we focused on our own stuff, our own comfort, even our own hatred as Jonah was that we lose perspective, we lose sight of God's mighty work of salvation through the gospel. I think we would probably all say that we want the gospel to be proclaimed. We want people to come to salvation. What about when that includes the people we may not like? What about that when it includes people who make our lives difficult? What about when that includes our spiritual and political enemies? What about when it includes those that it hates in our hearts? If we were to suddenly hear that they repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, would we rejoice in God's work or would we, like Jonah, pout and sulk from a distance? We have all throughout this book seen a generally unflattering picture of this prophet Jonah. Jonah is probably not as far from each of us as we would like to think. God commands us, we disobey. He delivers us, we quickly fall back into old ways. He does a mighty work, we scoff and question and despise it. God purposes to save, but so often we purpose to hate. So the end of Jonah leaves us to examine our hearts. Perhaps tonight you hear this account of Jonah and realize that like him, you have thought lightly of God's work. You have failed to be thankful for his work of salvation in you or in others. Well, the opportunity is for you tonight to repent and rejoice in Christ for what he has done. The God who was merciful to Jonah is also merciful to you. Perhaps you are here tonight as one of the people of Nineveh was then, before Jonah came, not knowing their right hand from the left. Not knowing anything of the great salvation in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could not. He died to make atonement. He died to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase our forgiveness and eternal life. All who would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ may receive this salvation. May all of us learn from Jonah to repent of our sins, to believe in Christ, to obey Christ, and to rejoice in the work of Christ in this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. Even as it is in many ways challenging, is difficult, 
It reveals to us our own failings, our own failures, our own inadequacies and sins. I pray that you would forgive us where we have fallen short, and I pray that you would, by your Spirit, motivate us to love and serve you and to love and serve the people that you have purposed to save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.